You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. along with your host, Dr. Esteban. Yes, it is me. It is he. Is it, do you say, is it me or do you, is it, what is the proper grammar? Is it, you say, it is me or it is I? What would be the proper grammar for college people? It is me. Because you are receiving something. Okay, what are you receiving? Accolades from all of our listeners because you're so great. Probably. Yes. How are you feeling? Is everything okay in your studio? Yes, in my uh, studio here, my Petri dish, all by myself. It's going great. How about yourself? Yes. In your house, too, I assume. <laughs> yes. So uh, I'm doing okay. Uh, we have a couple faculty members who are getting over, a couple colleagues who are getting over this, so we wish them well. Um, yes. A student last night who had COVID-19, wish him well. He's gotten over it. Um, yeah. Some... Uh, students who are very scared because they're living in houses with grandparents, for example, who have been tested positive and they're very nervous about this. Oh, gosh. Yeah, so uh, it's still a thing. Uh, it's going to be a thing for a while. Yeah, we haven't peaked. Uh, hopefully we'll peak this week, but we haven't peaked. Yes, as we record this, we're recording this on April 8th, Year of Our Lord 2020. The show will air April 15th. But we are pre-recording because we are uh, we can't be in the radio station live because of this issue, this problem we have with a virus. So tonight's guest, he's about to jump on any second. We're doing this via Zoom. Keith Halprich, General Counsel, Executive VP, Business and Legal Affairs for BMG in North America. So we're going to talk to him. And did you say something? No, I was just going to say a very cool guy. Yes, very cool guy. It's going to be a very good one. And let's see, usually our engineer is Ashley Veltner. She's in Germany right now trying to uh, make sure that the U.S. of Germany is. But Ashley's usually here, but she's not today. We should remind everyone, go to musicbiz101wp.com, sign up for that newsletter. Follow us on the Instagram, the Twitter, the Facebook at musicbiz101wp. And of course, you're listening to this probably on SoundCloud, iTunes. We always pump these up also on the LinkedIn. And we want to give some thanks. Should we give thanks, Dr. Esteban? We better. Let us give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne Bruno, Inc. and White Hat Management. With artists like Gabe Matthews, Readers, Dan St. Vincent, and Kiss, there's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to VB. <sighs> hyphen CPA.com when you're ready. And whose birthday is today on April 8th? Very big day, isn't it? For Aaron Van Dyne. Aaron Van Dyne of the Van Dyne Bruno people. Yes. So congratulations. Yes, big day. You think he turns 40. Good for him. 41, I think. Maybe 41. You're right. He looks 39. Yeah. We also should give thanks to Christine. Oi. They, a wealth manager at the Forefront Group. Christine has helped so many professionals at the University of William Patterson and so many professionals at other places of work, of business. She's helped them all manage their investments, plan out for their retirement. When someone like you is thinking of building a bridge to your financial future, all you need to do is think about the Forefront Group and go to christine.oyvey at Forefront, F-O-U-R, front.com. Leave the last oi off for savings. Which, which you should totally do. 
Managing your band, seventh edition, maybe that's coming in 2021. We will soon see. And what happens in the university has it looks like it's going to get ranked again as one of the best universities in we would hope that would come out pretty soon i know we're we're waiting for that but we believe we have been ranked again um so we got that so those are all the things those that's all we got going waiting for keith to come he sent the email he said let's go i'm ready when you are i said click on the link there we go hey guys hey, hey. hey keith sorry about that hey Good how are you man how are you guys you guys hanging in there yeah yeah. Yes. How about you? Staying safe? Staying safe, staying inside, staying away from the kids. I'm doing good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what years were you at Syracuse? I graduated, uh, I went from 92, graduated in 96. Ah, okay. Yep. I taught there till 84. Oh, wow. Down in have three degrees from Syracuse. Holy cow. Very nice to meet you. That's cool. That's I started cool. the uh, music business program there in the early 70s, mid 70s. That's impressive, that's impressive. Right when I got, I got off the road and I had nothing else in my life. Right. And lo and behold, I was living in Syracuse in the middle of January, uh -huh. uh, no money, and just a big, um, a big pot of spaghetti sauce. And the dean used to be my graduate advisor. Oh, okay. I was back in town. <laughs> And he asked uh, the long story short. Somehow I got the teaching there. That's impressive. That's oh. impressive. Yeah. So then you went to St. John's. Then I went to St. John's for law school. Okay. And I grew up, I grew up in Putnam County, Mayapack, New York. Uh -huh. Beautiful hamlet right on the lake. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And I spent my entire childhood trying to get out of there. Right. <laughs> and now all I want to do is go back. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Now I'm stuck in Staten Island, so it's over. Well, Staten Staten Island. Tell the listeners first how you got into the music business. Um, it was almost like an epiphany, actually. I was in law school, and I was working my ass off, right, in terms of classwork, interning, doing homework, studying. I was working probably 16 hour days on a regular basis. And in my second year, I felt like I was burning out. I really felt like I was truly burning out. But when I drive to St. John's in the morning, I'd listen to doo-wop, something I heard my father listen to. Mm -hmm. When I got home, I'd put on classic rock, what I enjoy. And in the evening, I was listening to jazz or classic music. And it kind of just hit me. It was like, if I could pay my bills, pay my rent, and work in the music industry, if I can deal in and with this, the soundtrack of my life, wouldn't that be the greatest vocation? Wouldn't that be just amazing? And from there, I just kind of Rue Goldberg, my patterns, my behaviors, and my academic work, my interning to get a job in the music industry. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, you know, it was pretty radical for me, right? I don't play an instrument. I'm not musical. Um, but if I could be an advocate for someone that's dealing with creative content, it really felt special because I get the blessing of getting to play in and with music all day, every day. Yeah. Pretty lucky guy. Yeah. So did they have any, uh, outside of copyright, did they have any courses at St. John's that prepared you? Absolutely not. Um, nothing that would prepare me to be an entertainment lawyer other than basic contract law, right? 20 years into my career, that's still the core of my skill set. Mm -hmm. But they don't teach you how to draft. They don't teach you how to negotiate. They teach you basic 101. Had a great contracts teacher. I still remember his name very well. But they had one professor, Professor Joe Beard, who taught an all-encompassing entertainment course. Very mm -hmm. broad strokes, very treetop. But he would bring in speakers from the industry, lawyers that were St. John's graduates or graduated from other schools that would come back and right. they would talk to you. You could do a mock negotiation. You could ask real world questions. And it just, it really, I mean, the seed had already been planted, but the passion grew. Like, wow, how, how great is this? And uh, so Professor Joe Beard, he passed away a good number of years ago, but that guy really stoked the flames. 
Mm-hmm. What was your first job? My first job out of law school, I was working as an associate to a private practitioner, and he was of counsel to Rudolph and Beer when Rudolph and Beer, the New York-based law firm, was on top of the world. They had everything from a 14-year-old girl named Britney Spears, who would go on to be Britney Spears. They had Wu-Tang Clan. They had shooting gallery independent filmmakers. They had anything and everything um, from the Backstreet Boys to 98 Degrees. Anything that was coming out of the transcontinental camp, Mm -hmm. they were handling. And a lot of the work was getting referred over to my boss at the time. And my boss at the time kind of let me wade into the deep end of the pool when he probably shouldn't have. I had no business doing the legal work I was doing. But before you know it, the water was over my head and I was swimming as furiously as I could, you know, and I was uh, negotiating in real time during the day, running to the library on the way home and then studying form books, you know, like Goldstein on contracts, Goldstein on entertainment contracts. It was really on the job training. There's no reason I should have been doing that job. I was wholly underqualified and it was just stunning. It was just great to get to do the work. Mm-hmm. That was Larry Rudolph, right? Larry Rudolph's firm and Stephen Beer. Right, right. So that so then how did you get into publishing? I was working for as an associate, as I said, and um, <clears throat> the fina- financial upside wasn't um, exactly what I needed it to be. And I was working probably seven days a week, super long hours. And uh, I realized my quality of life outside of work was relatively low. And uh, I wanted to find a balance between a career and a personal life. And I thought in my head, really immaturely, but I thought, oh, I could be an inside counsel, right? I can be an on-staff attorney somewhere. That sounds like it's not as demanding as being uh, at a law firm. And that's not the truth, but that's what I thought, you know, all those years ago. And uh, like I said, I would practice law during the day, re- read form books at night. And my idea of a good time was reading Billboard magazine. Mm. So I'd always read the classifieds in the back of Billboard. And I ran across a posting for a job at Cherry Lane Music Publishing Company, comma, Inc. I called them up. Or rather, I sent in my resume. Um, the in-house attorney at the time called me back. I said, listen, I'm working till nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. And she said, well, I do too. Why don't you, you know, why don't we meet in the Cherry Lane office at eight o'clock at night? And uh, I had a meeting and I wasn't going to let go of the rope. You know, I, I, I got the job. And uh, I always said to myself, I don't want to be a publishing guy. I want to do no more than three years. I'm going to go from private practice to in-house and then I can call my own shots. I can do what I like. Uh, three years turned into a decade at Chilean yeah. Music Group, and uh, off we go. Right, so did you uh, then come over to BMG when they bought Cherry Hill? Yeah, Cherry Lane, that's okay. Cherry Lane was on the market. We went to market once, uh, had no success finding a suitor. About nine months later, we went back to market, and... Uh, the proprietors that owned Cherry Lane, it was a beautiful family-owned business, didn't really want to go for the, the full Chinese menu of legal options. They brought in, in an M&A firm to do that portion of it, but they didn't bring in a, uh, an IP lawyer. They didn't bring an intellectual property lawyer in. So I found myself working on this you know, 100-page-plus document, was very involved in the meetings and the courting of Cherry Lane by BMG, and I kind of tricked, you know, I, I kind of tricked BMG into thinking I was a real lawyer, new IP, full service lawyer. And uh, they haven't fired me yet. And it's been a decade of BMG. So I came over as part of this transition. And not a lot of my colleagues made that transition. All right. So you talk like, uh, I've done this for years. You talk like almost uh, you're embarrassed, but you haven't failed. So you must be all these things that they thought you were. Right. People always say to me, Keith, wow, you went from Cherry Lane to BMG, and now you're an EVP or the general counsel BMG. How do you do it? Or how did you do it? And I said, you know, I hid under my desk 
I hid it under my desk for the longest time and they didn't, couldn't find me, so they couldn't fire me. <laughs> Dave, you got something to say? Yeah, um, I want to go back to, because we met you back um, in November mm -hmm. at a, uh, we, we visited uh, BMG and took a bunch of students there. And there was something you talked about, um, a couple things you brought up uh, regarding your start. One thing is that when you were eight at St. John's, um, you had said at the time that you were not the top guy in the class. You know, you were, I don't want to say a C student, a B, a B minus student. Um, you weren't like the A plus student. So what did you do to set yourself up though, knowing that you had to, I guess, you know, break through? You, everybody was graduating at the same time. How were you going to shine above those other people? So what did you do in your college year, at your time at St. John's to, to break through? That's a great question, Dave, but it was, um, it was very sobering to be in law school. Super competitive, super driven personalities. Everyone had an angle. Everyone was, was in the top college, right? Everyone did very well in college. You get to law school and I can't pass a crim law test, a criminal procedure test, uh, you know, civil procedure. I can't, I'm struggling. I'm racing my way to a, a C at best, right? I'm, I'm not excelling academically. I'm no longer able to coast. So you've got all these people and day one in law school, everyone wants to be a sports agent, an entertainment lawyer in the music business. I didn't, I just wanted a career, a degree to fall back on. And uh, then when I had that epiphany and realized I wanted to work in the music industry, I really started to brand myself. You know, I was going to class when required. I was doubling that to do the work. I was interning at anyone, anywhere that would take me. I interned at the Authors Guild. They're a pro bono group that negotiates for authors that don't have private counsel. I interned for a judge in, um, in Queens. I would take any internship. And back then, you didn't have to pay interns. That was still okay, right? The experience and the hard work was worth it. I interned nonstop. I read everything from Billboard to Variety. I would look for any angle just to know what was going on in the entertainment space. And I really started to brand myself as that, as that guy. Oh, he's going to be an entertainment lawyer. He's going to be a music guy. Because it was my passion that I wore on my sleeve. I was always leaving school to go work or intern. And uh, that was the early start. It was not just saying it, it was doing it. It wasn't just believing it. It was practicing what I believed. And, uh, you know, it just became, I just became manic. Anything I could do to distinguish myself from the pack, because there's a lot brighter people than I am, which you realize after speaking with me, but there's a lot brighter people out there, but nobody wanted it more. And no one was taking the steps I took to just distinguish myself. I was never going to be the best student. Mm. Mm. But uh, particularly, didn't you wrote something though too? Yeah, I realized that I was in Jamaica, Queens. I knew no one that was a practicing lawyer. I knew no one in the music industry. I'm the first person in my family to graduate college uh, in four years, let alone go on to get a law degree. And, and you know, panic set in and I realized no one's gonna pull me into a career. No one needs me uh, per se. So what I did is I spent probably 100 hours researching a specific issue to the legal community and the music community that was very important to me. I grew up listening to Judas Priest and Ozzy Osbourne. And if you remember back in the day, there was a rash of lawsuits against Ozzy and his record label, against Judas Priest and their record label. And these third parties were claiming liability. Well, that fascinated me as a kid, right? I, I love the lyrics. I love those bands. I want to be a lawyer. Let me jump into the legal angle. Let me see what this is all about. And it was, it was about the liability that a publisher or a label or a book um, publisher could have based on certain content. So I spent about 100 hours researching and writing and there was no St. John's Entertainment Law Review. 
So I just mailed that sucker, that finished law review article. I wrote a law review article after that research, obviously. And I just mailed that sucker, you know, around North America. Anywhere that had a publication, I sent it in and I got a, a, a lot of bites and I wound up getting published in the UC, UCLA Entertainment Law Review. Yeah. I was pretty badass, right? So I'm sitting yeah. in Queens, but I had the torque to get into a, a very important publication at the time. And from there, that just became my calling card. You know, when you go on an interview and they say, all right, you're okay, you know, I, I guess you're not the worst candidate for the job. Can you leave a writing sample with us? And you drop a UCLA Entertainment Law Review article on the desk, they go, wow, this guy believes in himself. He's banking on himself. He will hit the ground running. If he's willing to work that hard, man, this is a guy I want on my team. And it, it just, right, that was a game changer for me. You've got to believe in yourself before anyone else is going to invest in you from an employment point of view. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why uh, when you spoke to us, you were giving the students and us that lesson, basically. Mm -hmm. And you, what impressed us so much about you was the passion that you had and how you've had that passion for a long time. And just that law review article, I mean, that's going over and above and it's doing, again, things that nobody else, none of your other, of your peers were doing. And it's, it's really branding yourself. It's looking inward and saying, um, here's what I am. How can I maximize my potential? How can I really set myself up? And I think it was just a great lesson you did because that was sort of the jumping off point for you. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. But really it is. Even when I interview people, I have a department of about 14 lawyers today. We've got a publishing division. We've got a record division. We have a film division. We put out books. We're involved with joint ventures with management agencies. We've got a We've got a team of 14 that handles an awful lot of IP. If I'm going to give you a spot on my team, man, I got to be sure. I got to know you're the right person for the job, that you're always going to want to be working. You're always going to be researching. You're always going to be spot on. How do I know that from a piece of paper, a resume, and a cover letter? How do I know that? Unless you have absolute confidence in yourself, to the point of being cocky, mm -hmm. How can a third party believe in you? So to this day, I mean, 20 years later, I still believe in that. Show me how good you are. Show me how hard you're willing to work for you, and then I'll give you a shot. Because, you know, the, our space is very competitive. Very, very competitive. Mm -hmm. It's also that you found, uh, what I always preach too, is you found a niche that nobody else was doing. In other words, you were in a classroom maybe with people that want to be entertainment lawyers, but nobody thought of a St. John's law, entertainment law review. And right. you sure it wasn't there and you did it. <clears throat> yeah, no one was inviting me to write for the St. John's law review based on my grades. Right. And I'd probably thank Professor Bobas for giving me a couple D's in those criminal courses, but I digress. But it was, and if a publication got published in the St. John's journal, it really wouldn't matter. It wouldn't have the gravitas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah. if you put your name under their masthead, right, UCLA, or someone as significant in the field you want to be in, sure. man, it's a good housekeeping seal of approval. Yeah, absolutely. So let's say you're talking to a, could be somebody just graduating high school or somebody who's in college and they're thinking, I, I really do enjoy entertainment law. I, I, I've, I've taken a class in it, I've read about it, I, I, I see lawsuits going on. Um, what's a really good path for somebody who wants to become an entertainment lawyer? What do you think are steps that they should take so that when they get out of school, they, you know, can be off and running? Uh, that's a great question. It's a great question. It's, you know, my daughter is about to graduate high school as a valedictorian and she's thinking about a career. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And when we speak, it's kind of like, Ashley, where do you want to be? And she'll tell me and I'll say, well, are you needed? Does that field need you? Keep your eyes open. Keep your options open. Don't be so focused that you're going to be an expert in a field where no one needs you. Um, so if someone's in high school or college now, it's the entertainment field is very, very broad. I thought I would just be a record guy, right? A record lawyer. I'm not. I, I drive litigation. I do uh, 
deal making transactions. I touch intellectual property, including trademarks, copyrights, publishing deals, record deals. I do it all. But if I had said back in the day, I'm only going to take a job in recorded music, I wouldn't be in the chair I'm in now. So I would say you really have to keep your options open. Read everything. You have to be voracious. You have to read everything. Be aware of, any, of everything. If I'm in college now, I want to work for Netflix. I want to work at Triller. I want to work for the next Netflix, right? Don't set your target on the dinosaurs or the existing guard. Look for what's coming up next. Um, keep an open mind. Consume anything and everything you can. Work your ass off, but be a little flexible in terms of getting into it. I mean, I can be more specific, Dave, but it's really about, you know, where is the opportunity and where does it dovetail with your passion? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So tell us a little bit about the structure of BMG in this country. Uh, what we've read is that supposedly the each office is a, sort of independently has a complete structure, whether it's Nashville or it's LA or it's New York City. And basically it's a <coughs> label that is interested in catalog product more than um, new acts. Mm -hmm. Grew out of the publishing because out of Bertelsmann from Europe, of course, a big publisher and BMG grew out of the publishing angle. Yeah, that's, that's fair to say. I mean, the Moan family, which controls Bertelsmann, right? Our shareholder is the Moan family, the corporate parent is Bertelsmann, and then there's BMG Rights Management US LLC. Mm -hmm. When Bertelsmann divested of its traditional record label, as well as its traditional publishing arm, it left the music industry it decided to come back with a very specific focus, catalog that is timeless, catalog that will stream, classic catalog that always does well. We're insulated against the storm, and Hartwig Mausch, who's our global CEO, really was the, the, the tip of the spear, right? It was his vision, and our job within BMG is to get to know an artist, get to know where they want to go, what is their vision, and do everything within the BMG family to amplify that vision. <clears throat> so it's really about putting the artist first, whether it's a songwriter, recording artist, producer. It's about putting their interests first, wrapped around reasonable commercial terms, but we're not gouging. What's different about some of our um, recording artist deals is we leave the copyright ownership with the recording artist. They maintain copyright ownership and we have an exploitation or license period for a certain number of years. When I talk to any artist from the 70s, that's gonna be one of their main gripes. I don't own my intellectual property. Well, BMG came back in, as I said, and we put the artist's interest first. Yes, we turn a profit. Yes, we're a for-profit business, but it's not based on the old paradigm. It's based on a new way of doing things. And then in terms of structure, um, we don't have three sets of everything. There's no um, bloating within BMG. It's a very, very lean team. We have three wholly staffed creative departments, one in New York, one in LA, one in Nashville. But all these new deals, all these A&R services and creative services still run through the same set of pipes. One royalty team, one legal team, you know, and so on. So it, it, it's built smart. There's never an abundance of extra employees. It's a, a lean, well-staffed team of people that are very entrepreneurial, mm -hmm. that subscribe to the vision that the company was built on. All right. Now, uh, I had heard, I can't remember through whom, but I had heard that, um, some of the companies that were doing this licensing deal where the, the uh, artist owns their own copyright was doing the, the licensing it in perpetuity. That wasn't you guys, was it? Some, some people do that now. That's not us. That's not us. Okay. <laughs> All right, no. so 
so with the deals, because you mentioned owning the copyright, is that for publishing? Is that for the master recording? Is it for both? Are these admin deals on the publishing side and they own the rights to the master? You guys are licensing that. Can you explain where you guys are with that? Yeah, sure. I mean, the lyrics and metal, uh, lyrics and melody, right? The songwriting component. You don't have to give all of your rights to BMG. If you just want to do a publishing deal, we do a publishing deal that stands on its own. If you want to do a recorded music deal, that stands on its own. So they're not coupled together. We're not leveraging and screwing the artist in any one component, right? It's not a sleight of hand trick. Each contract is fully negotiated in and of itself. And, um, you know, we can do a co-publishing deal where we come in and own half the composition on a publishing deal with the rights reverting at a period certain, right? It's an arm's length deal. It's about fairness and transparency at BMG. So that what's novel about the recorded side is there, we're almost never owning the copyright. And the publishing side, we're a little more traditional, but we're not aggressive. We're not taking your copyright in perpetuity. Good luck, God bless. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did you have something to add to that, Marconi? No, I was thinking. Uh, <laughs> okay. Okay. So sort of where we were um, going, well, I was curious about that. So um, that also leads to the 360 deal is not something that you guys need to do. You aren't taking a piece of touring and merch and every other piece of an artist's revenue streams. No, we're not wrapping artists up, plowing in a pile of money and hoping for the best. That's, that's just not the model. We're very specific, very strategic. We're not taking rights that we can't actively exploit and drive revenue. If we can't add value, we're not taking those rights. We're not doing 360 deals. Absolutely not. Okay. What about film? In BMG getting big in film? Not big. We've had some, not big, you know, nothing is too big. We're not a major. We're still a large indie in publishing, a large indie in records. So we're not going to compete with the majors in film either. But if Joan Jett has a documentary and we publish her, we'd love to have that conversation. We've had success with that. Same with David Crosby. So we're very selective when it comes to films. If that was the artist's vision when they walked in the door, we'd love to partner with them smartly on a film deal. We're not stockpiling film assets. We're not gonna compete with the household names. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> However, um, you should tell us about uh, the company's relationship with Netflix and the original properties that Netflix creates and, and the music side of that. <clears throat> Yeah, that, that's a great question. You know, Steve, we were talking a little bit of, you know, how I got to BMG. When I got to BMG, there was no one working as a film and TV music publisher, mm -hmm. um, meaning we own, administer, and control the rights to music and original content by production companies. No one was doing that. They don't give you a gold or platinum record. They don't put your name in billboard. But I assure you, publishing these type of film and TV production companies keeps the lights on. It's a good, stable revenue stream. And uh, where I was at Cherry Lane, we were tenacious, we were scrappy, we would do a lot of film and TV deals. When I moved over to BMG, I noticed no one was doing it. Um, so I kind of took it on. In-house counsel and I'll source film and TV publishing deals and, you know, Fast forward, BMG was the first and only music administrator for Netflix. Netflix mm -hmm. signed their first music administration deal with BMG. And I'm very proud to say I was the tip of the spear on that. And to this day, we have a, an amazing relationship. It's you know evolving into more than just music administration, but that's something I'm extremely proud of. Finding this niche, letting it mature as a business model, and then staffing around it. So right now we have everyone from Steven Spielberg's Amblin Productions to Ubisoft, the mm -hmm. video gaming company that has film and TV properties, from Netflix to AMC, right? These are all pieces of pop culture. And we have the privilege of being their administrator on, on the publishing side. It's a great ride. Yeah, great. And great. explain to our listeners who may not understand, give them sort of like a publishing 101, when you're talking about being their administrator, then you talked about co-publishing earlier. Can you just sort of briefly explain the difference between the two and also the traditional publishing deal so that they understand the differences? Yeah. 
Sure. Um, in essence, you have to follow the copyright. If it's an administration agreement, the creator is giving only the right to license and exploit to its publisher. An administration agreement means the copyright stays with the original creator. We administer 100%, collect all of your money, take a VIG and pay it through to you, right? We collect the gross revenue, take our percentage, our negotiated percentage and pay the balance through to you. These deals are typically for a certain period of time or until the publisher recoups its money or a similar event. In a co-publishing deal, the original creator is actually transferring 50% of their copyright ownership interest to a publisher, as well as the right to administer 100%. So you can see what happens there. In a deal like that, the publisher at the end of the term, only half of the copyrights reverting back to the creator. Now you have co-owners in, in a composition or in a copyright rather. So you have the original creator who gave us half, the term ends, so the creator has half a copyright and the publisher has a half a copyright and each party can individually license its respective interest. And then in a full publishing deal, that's just straight up old school, right? That's 100% of the composition went to the publisher and 100% of the licensing rights went to the publisher. And at the end of the term, the creator got revenue. At the end of the term, the copyright doesn't go back to them. They have nothing to license. How creative are these deals getting? For example, I was in Nashville last year uh, at a music biz conference and I was on a, a lit watching a panel with uh, had a couple attorneys and some publishing people. And they were talking also about a hybrid deal that was a co-publishing deal for, let's say, 10 years. And they would say after the 10 years, the uh, publish the copyright that was owned, half owned by the uh, publisher was then going to revert back to the songwriter unless they decided to renew for a longer period of time. Are you seeing deals like that? And are you seeing any other sorts of creative deals just because people are interested in doing something different? Yeah, I, 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 the answer is yes, but it's you know a willing seller, willing buyer sort of philosophy. You're trusting a company to manage these assets for you. It's as creative as you wanna be, right? You can do, an administration agreement, but perhaps if the publisher does something like place your song in a movie, secure revenue for a song over a certain dollar amount, or do something extraordinary, the publisher then co-publishes that song, right? That's upside protection for the publisher. And similarly, you could have a full publishing deal that reverts to a, to a co-pub, or later to an admin, you can do whatever you want, right? But at BMG, it's about fairness and transparency, but certainly you see all sorts of creative deals, all sorts of creative deals right now. One more, one more question, because uh, I was just thinking as you were talking. So in a co-publishing deal, a dollar comes in. Um, mm -hmm. In theory, if it's co-publishing, we'd split it 50-50, 50 cents to me, 50 cents to you. However, there's the admin part that you are taking so it's not really 50-50, correct? Because you would also take a fee for doing that administrative part as well, correct? That's a fully negotiable term. Not all publishers will take an admin fee on top. Some will, some okay. will. Okay. So, so the ones but, that do, I guess, that's going. I was just going to say, do, if they're getting, let's say, a 15% admin fee in addition, they are getting then, we could call it 65% on that dollar and the uh, other copyright holder would be getting 35 cents. Sure, and you can also see deals where old school publishers would receive a dollar outside the US, they'd leave a healthy percentage with their foreign affiliate. So let's say a dollar comes in um, in Europe, that local sub-publisher keeps 25%, remits 75 cents to the US affiliate then the U.S. affiliate goes through the computation of then splitting it down again. So the artist not, is not getting accounted to at the source, right? The same company is taking two fees. I mean, that's old school publishing. You won't find it much anymore, but there's very many ways for writers to strike bad deals. <laughs> and really old school publishing is you give the writer a car and say, thanks. And <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, 
history is littered with those really sad tales. But yeah, I've got a brand new Cadillac and I've never seen a royalty check in my career. Right. Sure. Yeah. Are you talking, Dave? Dave must be talking. Dave, I think you're on mute. Your mic went off or something. I, I should be on mute sometimes. I was swearing my head off. But <laughs> the, the guy who wrote Money, That's What I Want, Barry Gordy from Motown, um, put, when it came to uh, writing out the registration with the copyright, uh, you know, with the Library of Congress, um, mm -hmm. erased the songwriter's name and just put his name on. And so the songwriter, uh, money, that's what I want. Shoot, I'll, I'll figure it out in a second. Tommy James. What? No. No. I was going to refer you to Morris Levy and Tommy James as a cautionary yeah. tale. That would be another one we could talk about. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's supposed to be a mood. Did you ever read that book? I read the book a few times. Right. And a friend yeah. helped me with the big words. It's a great book. Great read. <laughs> <laughs> that's supposed to be a, um, a movie at some point. That would be impressive. See, I would see that. I, we, I had love we had him here on campus uh, when the book came out. That's impressive. Barrett yeah. Strong, by the way. That was the songwriter of Money, That's What I Want. Barrett Strong. Yeah, uh, Barrett okay. Strong. So, he, so here's a good, can I ask him one more question, Marconi, about legal copyright? Well, only after I say I don't know anything about Barry Gordy or that writer, so. <laughs> That's okay. Because um, this is another thing I read about this I don't know if you post, you're really good on LinkedIn and posting stuff up there. Thank you. If you posted this or somebody else, but I read this last, Mike might've been another uh, attorney friend I have on LinkedIn who posted about the, uh, this is, I think this goes back to master recordings, how uh, the traditional record company um, was owning the master recording for the artist. Let's say this was a deal cut in 1974. And then after, I think it was 35 years, the artist had two years to state that they wanted that master recording back. And I forget what that was called. And then if they didn't, um, it went back to the record label. Um, can you explain sort of what I'm talking about in a horrible way? And yeah, it's, it's a contractual provision that um, is put in to give the artist an opportunity to get their rights back. It's basically a notice period. But if you miss that window to provide notice, you lose your ability to recapture your copyright. So there's two things. There's a contractual clause. You can just say, it's Tuesday, so I'm putting this clause in the contract. I'll give you a contractual right to reclaim your works or your masters. Right, that's a, a, a function of a contract. That's just freely negotiated, willing buyer, willing seller. We just put that clause in there. But then there's also the U.S. statutory termination rights, 35 years from the date of transfer. There's very specific um, obligations and things you have to do to get your rights back. And that's what we're seeing go through the courts right now at some of the major record labels. 35 years from the date of transfer, the original granting party has the right to recapture their copyrights if they comply with certain statutory requirements. Very detailed, very academic, and certainly the substance of litigations. Was that the Sonny, uh, Sonny Bono Act or what? Um, I can't remember. I, I it believe it's been 76. It goes back to 1976, I think. So it was pre-Sonny Bono in Congress. Well, no, this is, this is under... Any grant of rights subsequent to January 1st, 1978 can be recaptured 35 years from the day of transfer. And I believe it to be the Sunny Bono Act. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, because I remember reading about this, and I guess in 2013 was 35 years later. And I remember uh, the Commodores uh, were, were one group, um, and you're, you're seeing some artists that are coming out and trying to get that 35 years after. And when they created 35 plus years ago now, um, when there was all being negotiated that copyright clause, I thought, I believe they were thinking 35 years is a really long time from now. Let's just throw it in there. And now that 35 years is up and lots of people are spending money on lawyers to uh, litigate. Yeah, true. But I mean, think about it. How many albums have a shelf life of 35 years? How many mm -hmm. albums 
really stand the test of time and be a, a revenue-bearing, meaningful copyright. I mean, there's certainly a lot, but I'd say the majority of artists, 35 years from the date of transferring that copyright, the copyright's probably valueless, right? Or has little value other than to the creative or his heirs. We won't get into all of that, but right, it's a select few, I would imagine, that are really recapturing crown jewels. There's certainly a lot and a lot of names that come to mind, but it's not the clear majority. Mm -hmm. Okay, what's next for uh, BMG? Where do you see the growth? Sure. Uh, BMG is very aggressive in protecting its artists' rights. BMG is very aggressive in being a zealous advocate for its rights holders. So we have uh, never been afraid to bring the Copyright Act to the attention of infringers. Mm -hmm. That has allowed us to set some real important legal precedents, including the case of uh, BMG versus Cox Communications in which we established a new theory of liability for internet service providers based on the behavior of their subscribers. Uh, BMG is really optimizing the rights it has right now. We're able to strike creative partnerships with the likes of Facebook, Snapchat, Peloton, TikTok. If it's being used on a phone in your home, I assure you BMG is in a conversation or a dialogue to make sure it's properly licensed. These are really exciting to us. Um, and I'm not saying any of those folks are bad actors. I'm just saying BMG's not afraid of technology. We realize that technology moves far quicker than the Copyright Act. So rather than always litigate everything, we like to strike creative partnerships. We like to enter into licenses or covenants not to sue, right? Here's a grant of rights do what you want for a certain period of years, but pass enough money so our riders are taken care of and that there's upside for everybody. And when we can't reach those sort of amicable business to business resolutions, mm -hmm. we're not afraid to bring litigation. So we're very interested in optimizing what we have now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. I have Great. a couple of questions. Uh, some tweets came in. Wow. Some, so uh, some people uh, asked a few questions for you, and a few people asked the same question. So here, uh, Connor uh, Kalupski wants to know, what are the most common publishing problems, issues, mistakes that you find with DIY artists? That, that's a great question. When you're doing it yourself, um, it, it leaves a lot of room for error. I'm not saying it can't be done, but if you're running your business and you're Business is writing compositions, performing compositions, touring, and recording music. Who's watching your back office? Who's making sure that your copyright registrations are properly filed? Who's making sure that your songs are registered with the various entities and agencies around the world to allow you to maximize your collections? Right? You need a performance rights society. Are you a member? Are you a member in good standing? You want to make sure the pipes are open so that when you achieve that level of success, money is pouring in the pipes. There's so many places where money can be left on the table if you're not a diligent publisher. Um, some mistakes would also be being too eager and signing a bad deal. You don't want that Cadillac and no royalty check, right? Life cycle of an artist isn't as long as we all hope it can be. Very few artists get multiple records and then break successfully. The world isn't waiting for Bruce Springsteen again. You're not going to get all those shots to have a successful record. You've got to break quickly. You've got to make money quickly. You've got to start streaming quickly. You enter into a really bad deal. That may be it. You may not have a second bite at the apple to enter into a deal that lets you retire, that brings in your money as a 401k at the end of your career. That's interesting. Um, Dolphin wants to know what kind of effects do you think new media like Twitch and other live streaming services will have on the music industry? No, I, I think it's a great way for artists to connect directly with the consumer, right? That allows for more do-it-yourself artists. It allows for more connectivity. It allows people to build a fan base before they have to spend a lot of money on that perfect record or touring. It really gives people to connect one-on-one -on -one and as I said, new media is evolving so quickly. The Copyright Act was never built to keep pace with it. Um, 
but it's a fascinating time, right? I'm learning more about technology by looking over my kid's shoulder than actually using the technology. But a, a smart music company will partner early with new media. It won't litigate these entities into, distinct, into extinction. It'll make sure it gets what it needs financially. It'll make sure it allows the artist to use the tools it wants to connect with its fans. Hunter wants to know, what are some ways developing artists could think more like business people to take advantage of opportunities in publishing that they may be missing out on? I think you have to look at your copyrights as an annuity, right? It's a business. It's the business of you as a creative force. It's not about giving away copyrights. It's really about building that nest egg. It's protecting your interests. Um, but it's also about co-writing. What else can you do? Don't have such tunnel vision that you're leaving opportunity on the table, right? It's, 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 it's not a shooting star approach. It's got to be, okay, this is my vocation. I've got to pursue this passion, drive revenue, but not give away the back end. Make sure there is uh, money at the end of your career, right? To sign a bad deal and put out a record label may mortgage your future. Right? Keep your eyes wide open. Always use an attorney. Don't just sign anything. Don't sign that bar napkin. Right? You don't need that manager if the contract's on a bar napkin. There's, there's never a deal that has to be signed the minute it's presented to you. When you get a draft of something, take it around the block. Think about it. Think about if this is really what you want and how will this set you up in the future. Right? Sometimes the worst thing that can happen is someone becomes super successful and they've signed a bad deal. They may never, never, ever recover. Interesting. Um, are you still on the board of ASCAP? I'm on the board of ASCAP and I'm on the board of the NMPA. Okay. Um, because a couple people, including uh, Olivia Cedron, wants to know what are your duties? Of, uh, what are your duties as a board member of those organizations? Um, the duties in, in, include being a sounding board for the executives of the company, right? Are the numbers correct? Are we treating writers appropriately? Are we doing the right thing? Are we deploying capital into the right opportunities? Are we doing what's in the best interest of the writer as an entity? And speaking of ASCAP, I'll bring this up. It's, so, it's sort of timely because, uh, and I do have an artist who I manage who's through ASCAP and they released uh, yesterday that uh, payments for the next quarter may be late um, because of the COVID-19 situation. So um, can you explain for our listeners why that would be, what, like where ASCAP is getting a lot of their money and why this is a thing for them? Yeah, I, I can't speak as to ASCAP specifically, but I imagine many companies in all different sectors would, would want to make sure they have liquidity and are insulated against what may or may not be ahead. I can't speak on behalf of ASCAP though, but it's just, it just, it seems like most businesses might slow down payments a little bit to insulate against the storm. Right. And in this case, um, it seems like, cause so much of ASCAP's revenue comes from radio and radio right now is doing horribly because local businesses are either going out of business or not spending money on radio advertising. So therefore, uh, whether it's iHeart, Cumulus, or other radio conglomerates, they aren't going to have that pool of money to pay to ASCAP in licensing fees um, for that public performance just because they don't have the money. Again, going back to liquidity, even the, either they need that liquidity or they just don't have it to pay to ASCAP. And BMI and CSAC and Global Music Rights, so it's not even just ASCAP, but yeah. Did I sound smart when I said that, by the way? I'm also trying to sound really smart through this whole situation. You both sound ex exceedingly smart. That, okay, that's what I'm going. It took you a long time to admit that, by the way. So Yeah, and I never, you know, I never want to give it away, you know? <laughs> yeah, all right. Um, Marconi, do you have anything else? Because we are actually close to wrap-up time. Do you yeah, want we have the um, Steve Leeds thing. That's, uh, that's after this. That's not on the yeah. air. That's what I mean. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, I'm fine. I think it was great. Yeah. Okay. Um, let me ask you. One, 
Yes, one sir. final question. One final question. Sorry. Because um, it's something when you sat with us, you said one thing that I thought was really important, and I think it can go um, be a good way out of this. You said, do I want this so desperately that no matter what, I'm going to get it? That's something you said to us based upon you at your early part of your career. Can you kind of explain that? Yeah, no, I, I think it's, you know, how bad do you want something? How, how much are you willing to commit? Are you willing to do whatever it takes? Because if you're not, the person to your left, the person to your right will outwork you. You need to show up every day when you have a career with a little bit of a chip on your shoulder, with your eyes wide open, but you really have to make your bones day in and day out. I mean, there's many people that would be happy to have my chair at BMG. I know that every day. And if I don't want it more than someone else, if I'm not willing to pull those all-nighters, if I'm not willing to do whatever it takes, I assure you there's someone else that will be willing to do that. Mm -hmm. All right. And it goes back to your passion. You still have passion. You still have a fire for what you're doing. Absolutely. It's, it's, you know, what a wonderful, what a wonderful field to be in. Yeah, well, that's cool. All right. So hang on for one second, please, because um, we're just going to wrap this up. Marconi, thank you very much yes. for co-hosting me with me. Yes. You did a great job today. You really did. did you, my co-host. Yes, thank you so safe. much. By the way, nobody's talked to me about, um, we mentioned Aaron Van Dyne. His birthday is today. My birthday is this Sunday on Easter. And... Um, you know, it's uh, risen. Domain had the song "Happy Birthday" now, uh, so um, it to me now or later. You can you guys can tweet it to me, but that's coming up. So FYI. Yeah, that'll be later. Thank you. Okay, next week our guest Kate Hyman, sticking with BMG, VP of A and R at BMG. Uh -huh. We are looking forward to that. So thank you for listening to Brave New Radio. Thank you for listening to Music Biz One Hundred and More. I am your professor David Kirk Philp, doing the show with Dr. Esteban. Marconi. Yes. And at the end of every show, Keith, we do not say hello. You want to know what we say at the end of every show? And you can say it with us. It goes like this. Here we go. Adios! Oh, she didn't join in, Keith. Come on, just to get a little bit of adios, Keith. Adios.